Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and the man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, as we get into this next chapter tonight, we saw last week that Jesus' yoke sets us free from the yoke of slavery to the law and its demands. Now, tonight's lesson will take us even deeper into a study of this concept. Now, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and it's a Sabbath day. Now, some of the guys were hungry, the scripture says, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat them. Now, before we get into what the Pharisees accused them of, just stop for a second and think about this. They're, Jesus is walking with his disciples. They're going through a grain field. Some of the guys are hungry. They take some of the grain. They most likely picked it, put it in their hands, and separated the wheat from the chaff, and blew away the chaff, and then they ate the grain. Who accuses them of breaking the Sabbath? What were they doing in the grain field? They had to have been following them around looking for something that they were doing. Go to Matthew chapter 12 and look again at verse 10. Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 10. And a man was there in the, in the synagogue with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why were they asking the question? The scripture says so that they might accuse him. One of the things I've dealt with over the years as I uh, go around the country and speak and teach and teach the word of God is a lot of times when I go to places for a week or so, they'll say, you seem to know a lot of the Bible. Would you do a question and answer night? And I don't mind doing that. I love question and answer nights because it's given me a chance to allow the spirit to bring passages to mind and to answer scriptural questions. But I've also found out over the years that there are some people that will ask questions not because they want to hear an answer. They ask questions to try to trip you up. They ask questions to see whether or not you're on their side theologically. And I've learned over the years when I start to sense that attitude to just ask the question before we get into it, because otherwise that person will want to sit there and argue and debate with me and kill the time. Second Timothy 2.24 says the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must gently instruct in the hopes that God will bring him to an understanding. And so a lot of times I've learned over the years to say, hang on for a second. Are you asking this question because you want to hear what my answer is? Or are you wanting to just attack whatever it is I say back to you? Because if that's what your purpose is, 
we're not going to waste our time with that. But if you're curious as to what I think, that what the scripture's saying, and you want to hear my response, I'll give it to you. But I've learned, Jesus knew that these guys weren't there for any other purpose but to say, we already know what we believe. We don't really want to hear what you have to say. We just want to use what you say against you. Go to Psalm 109. If you ever take the time to really just spend some time in the book of Psalms, you'll start to realize that even though David wrote about himself and Asaph and others wrote about themselves, all through the scriptures you will see that there's a lot of prophecy about Jesus and what he was to go through. In Psalm 109, look at verses 1 through 5. Here again it says in our little headings that it's the Psalm of David. It says, Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Even though this was probably happening to David, who's it really talking about? Jesus and how even though he came to seek and to save and his purpose was to demonstrate and to live out the love of God on their behalf they rewarded his love with hatred and his good with evil go to Revelation chapter 12 and I'm going somewhere with this so stick with me in Revelation chapter 12 look at verses 7 through 10 Near the end of the tribulation period, actually right around the middle, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, it says there a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Let me ask you a question. How is Satan described here in this passage? He's the what? <clears throat> the accusers of the brothers, and he actually is still in the presence of God. People have said for years, God cannot be in the presence of evil. Satan's in his presence right now. Satan is able to go in and out of his presence. He's accusing all the time. There's going to be a point where he's going to be finally cast out of heaven down to the earth. And the Bible says that he'll know that his time is short. And woe to people that are on the earth at the time. But he's the one that's always up there accusing. I say this for a reason. The Pharisees were following around Jesus and his disciples. Were they curious? Were they wanting to know? Were they wanting to learn? Or was their purpose to find some way they could accuse and some way they could, listen, justify themselves by attacking him? By accusing him of wrong, they would, in a sense, make themselves feel better about themselves. Christians, don't become one of those people. Unfortunately, one of the things that Christians are known for over the years is the fact that Christians tend to be those who look at those around them with an attitude of, if I wouldn't do that, I'm better than that. And we have a tendency to love to point out people's faults, whether they're in the church or whether they're in the world. 
When you find yourself feeling better about yourself by pointing out what you think other people are doing wrong, first off, you don't know the full story. Second of all, you're probably wrong. And thirdly, you are wrong because of your attitude. Don't be one of them. Go to Joe. Go ahead, Warren. Yes, true. Christians, as has been said for years, Christians are the only group that bayonet their own wounded. Go to Job chapter 40. Look at what God says to Job. As you know, Job started off real good. He didn't accuse God of wrongdoing, it says, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But as you keep reading the book of Job, you come to realize that he starts saying he doesn't think that's right. He doesn't think this is fair. If he only could have a face-to-face with God, he would feel much better and he could defend himself. Well, God does show up. He starts his conversation with Job in chapter 38. But look at what God says to Job in chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Now I'm going to ask an honest question here tonight. Have any of you ever done that with God? Have you ever accused God of wrong so that you would put yourself in the right? By the way, I hope everybody puts their hand up. We all have. We don't want to admit it. I noticed nobody raised their hand, but I need to raise my hand. You need to raise yours. Folks, listen closely. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way? You've been accusing God to make yourself better. We have to be careful. That attitude's in all of us. It's not just in the Pharisees. It's so easy for us to look at the Pharisees and think, well, I'm not like that. Guess what? You sounded more like the Pharisees than you ever have when you look at the Pharisees and say, I'm not like that. Isn't that how the Pharisee prayed? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner next to me praying. Folks, let me just say to you, the Pharisees' purpose, most of them, was to go and find a way that they could accuse him. But it was also to make them feel better about themselves. Don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people. Now, interestingly enough, Even though the law of God did not allow harvesting for profit on the Sabbath, it did allow people to eat someone else's grain if they were hungry. Did you know that? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. As they were going through the uh, the, the grain fields on the Sabbath, they weren't breaking the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, look at verses 24 and 25. says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes. That doesn't mean Publix, grocery, produce department. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. God had in the law set up ways that if you were hungry and you were happened to be walking through a grain field, you could grab something to eat. There's nothing against that. But ironically, or interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't quote from Deuteronomy 23 when he answers the Pharisees' attack that these guys were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. 
He goes deeper in this issue, and that's where we're going to go tonight. He goes deeper. He points out that David, King David, if you remember, and his men were permitted to eat the bread of presence, or the showbread, from the tabernacle, which according to the law of God was only allowed to be eaten by the priests. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 24, sorry, chapter 25, yeah, 24, starting verse 5. Leviticus 24, starting in verse 5. And let's see where the law of God actually said that they weren't, no one was allowed to eat that special bread except the priests. In Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. The law of God says, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So here we see that every Sabbath they were to take this bread and they were to swap it out with the new loaves and they were to go and eat it. Aaron and his sons, the priests were to eat it. It was to be only eaten by them. It was a holy offering to the Lord. It wasn't for anybody else, according to the law. Go to 1 Samuel 21, though, and we'll see the story that, that Jesus is quoting from or referencing. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, look at verses 1 through 6. In 1 Samuel 21, look at verses 1 and following. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter. And he said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will, will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. So here we see that in this situation when David is running and hiding from Saul, as Saul's trying to kill him, they're at a point where they don't have any food and they're hungry. And David sneaks over to the place where the priest is and he says, you got any bread for my men? And they said, all we got is the holy bread. And David then ate the bread that was only allowed for the priests to eat. Go back to Matthew chapter 12 now and let's, let's read it again. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and following. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law 
how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. What, by the way, how do the priests profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? They work. The Sabbath day was a day where you weren't allowed to do any work, but as you see already here, the priests are doing work on the Sabbath. The, the altar sacrifices continued, and they, the burning of the, of, the, of the incense, and all those things continued. And he goes, hey, have you ever thought about the fact that the uh, priests are working on the Sabbath? And then he goes on and he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to come back to some of that in a second. But look at what Jesus says. He could have quoted from Deuteronomy 23 and said, hey, they're doing what's lawful. It's okay. But no, he goes deeper. He pretty much says to him, you're totally missing the purpose of the law. Because if you understood what, the, what God's word says, and he quotes from Hosea 6.6, 6, and we'll get there in just a second. That if you understood Hosea 6.6, 6, where I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. You see, folks, we have a tendency sometimes to try to get so legalistically what we think righteous and right, we totally miss the whole point of the law. What, according to the whole of Scripture, was the purpose of God's law? To show you what? That you can't keep it. To reveal your sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and following talks about that. Actually, Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, The law was added so that the trespass would increase. That's interesting about that. Actually, if you'd go back and look at all of Romans chapter 5, you would see that God was laying out that through one man, Adam, sin came into the world and spread to everyone. But then through one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he came and he, through one act of righteousness, through his death on the cross, covered all those sins. But then he goes on and he says, but the fact that people died from the time of Adam when he broke God's command, all the way until the time of Moses, where there were no commands for them to break. He's realized back in Genesis, God said, you can eat from any tree you want. Here's the only command I give you. Don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Adam and Eve ate from that tree, broke the command of God. They sinned by breaking his word, his law. And because of that, death came to them. They died spiritually at that time. And at the same time, their bodies began to decay and to rot. And they went to the ground. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. But there were no laws to break or keep between that time until the time of Moses, when God gave his law. But during that whole period of time, Paul says, everybody kept dying. Why? Because that sin of Adam had passed on to everyone, and they all were dying because of their own individual sin. But they didn't realize it. Sin's not taken into account, the scripture says, when there's no law. You don't know you're breaking God's law. And so God says, I'm going to come and reveal to you how you are breaking it, and you don't realize it. And so he gave the law, but the law wasn't so that I'll be righteous by being good enough and keeping it. The law's purpose, as you've all already just said, was to reveal we can't keep it. And the heart of the law, the heart of the law was to show us our sinfulness. By the way, there were some people in the Old Testament who understood that. Go back to Hosea. If you're not sure where Hosea is, you can probably find Daniel. Find Daniel and Hosea is right after that. Go to Hosea chapter 6. And look at verse 6. This is what Jesus is quoting from. He says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God 
rather than burnt offerings. Do you see what, what God says? Because I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I don't want you to try to get right with me by following the law. I want you to love and not know me rather than burnt offerings. By the way, does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like something somebody else might have prayed? I see you nodding your head, Becky. Who does it sound like? Sounds like Samuel. To obey is better than sacrifice. Anybody else? There's another one. Isaiah 1. Go to Psalm 51. Go to Psalm 51. Look at what David says here. Grab, get Psalm 51 open here, and I can show you where we're going to be. Psalm 51, David says in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isn't that interesting? David, who had done the sin with Bathsheba, when he now realizes his sin, he starts crying out, God, I've been a sinner since the day I was born. Create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. God, make me clean. You wash me. If you wanted me to do something in order to be right before you, I would do it. But that's not what you want. You want a broken heart. You want a contrite spirit. That's what you don't despise. Blessed are those who are the poor in spirit and those who mourn over the fact that they're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The Pharisees totally missed the whole purpose of the law. They thought that they were righteous because they were keeping it perfectly. Actually, they weren't. Jesus was showing them. If you remember from our earlier study of Matthew, you think you've kept the law by not committing adultery. If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already broken because God goes deeper than that. As we go through, we see that the purpose of the law was just to reveal to us our inability to keep it. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. They were trying to use the law as a weapon against the people, and even the Sabbath laws as a weapon against the people. And Jesus says, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. And then he goes back. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Look at what he says again here. Start in verse... Three, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or you have not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus points out that even the Pharisees would pull their sheep out of a ditch later on in our study. Remember, we read that. They would pull their sheep out of a ditch if it happened on a Sabbath. And the priests work every Sabbath. He's also saying that the Sabbath laws don't, one, prohibit acts of necessity. Two, they don't prohibit service to God. Or three, deeds of mercy. Go to Luke chapter 6. You see Luke's account in Luke 6, verses 6 through 9. 
In Luke 6, verses 6 through 9, it says, On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to them Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were all filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Do you see how Jesus is saying, You guys are still looking at the law of right and wrong, and you're determining what is right and wrong. Well, who wrote the law? God did. Who's Jesus? God. He knows the purpose for which he wrote it and the heart behind it. And he's pointing out to them, guys, did you ever notice from your Bible stories in the synagogue how David apparently broke the law, but God was okay with it when he ate the bread he wasn't supposed to eat? Have you ever thought about the fact that the, the, the priest quote unquote, in your understanding, break the law every Sabbath when they do their work, you're still missing the point. Those of you that think that you know how God thinks. By the way, how many of us were raised that Sunday is the Sabbath and we weren't allowed to work? Remember how that? You weren't allowed to do, you weren't allowed to eat out. You weren't allowed to do all this stuff. Even though Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 says, don't let anybody judge you on whether or not you keep a new moon festival or a Sabbath day. These are all a shadow of what is to come. The reality has been found in Christ. But most of us were raised in the church under a legalistic mindset of still trying to follow the law to please God, even though the Bible says we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace. And don't let anybody judge you whether or not you keep a new moon or a Sabbath day. But the church, for so long, because that is in all of us, we want to figure out what we think is right and wrong and judge everybody else and whether or not they're doing it. Whether or not they're wearing a tie or not wearing a tie or wearing a skirt or not wearing a skirt or whether the choir is supposed to wear robes or not wear robes or whether they're supposed to run in the halls or not run in the halls and all these things. Years ago when I was a young boy, I, was, I started actually working when I was 13 years old. You know how you get your piece of paper in the mail every so often that shows you your social security if you retired now, what it would be and all that? I then realized I've been working since I was 13. You can figure out how old I was when I started. I've been drawing Social Security since I was 13. Don't know about the child labor laws and all that stuff, but at one point, I was bagging groceries. And at that time, my dad was pastor of a church in that little area of New Hampshire, and I actually was bagging groceries one day on a Sunday. It was Sunday after church, and I was bagging groceries that day. I was scheduled to work. And as I'm standing there at the end of the register bagging this lady's groceries, she said to me, she goes, aren't you the preacher's son? And I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, what are you doing working on the Sabbath? And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I started to take her stuff out of the bag. <laughs> I really did. I started taking it out of the bag. She goes, what are you doing? I go, I shouldn't be doing this. She goes, no, 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 bag mine. <laughs> it was so easy for her to say, you shouldn't be doing this, yet she was making me do it. Isn't that interesting how we... Love to be the ones who determine what the law says and how it's to be kept. Folks, there's only one judge, and there is a judgment day that's coming, and the one who is going to judge is Jesus. Go to John chapter 5. Go to John chapter 5. Look at verses 22 and 23. 
It was like when they uh, remember the blue laws they used to keep. Mm-hmm. You, know, you could buy a hammer, but you couldn't buy nails. Yep. You can go buy a pair of work boots, but they wouldn't save you. Again, that's because unfortunately, back in that day, the church was still under legalistic interpretations and they judged everybody whether or not they kept the law like they thought the law was. In, in John chapter 5, look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. By the way, uh, is Jesus going to be able to make right judgments when he makes judgment? Remember, he knows their thoughts. And see, have you ever noticed that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells him, tells her, you're going to have a miraculous baby? And she says, how will this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel says, here's how. The same angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah earlier while he's in the temple and says, your wife Elizabeth's going to have a baby. He pretty much says, how's this going to be? And the response of the angel is, I'm angel Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and because you didn't believe me, you won't be able to speak now until the baby's born. Wait a minute, didn't he just say pretty much the same thing Mary said? Oh, but the difference is their heart. God knows their hearts. Thomas doubted, but he didn't doubt because he didn't want to believe. Thomas doubted because he wanted to believe. Thomas was the same one who said, let's go to Jerusalem and die with him. Thomas wasn't wishy-washy. God knows our hearts. Folks, I don't want to throw a curveball to some of you that you can't handle. But have you ever noticed that when the, uh, Naaman was healed of leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5, that he came up to the prophet and said, can I, have, uh, can I pay you first? Can I pay you for what's just happened? And the prophet says, no, no money. He says, I got two other requests. One is, can I take a bag of Israelite dirt and take it back with me to Aram because I would love to worship the true God on Israelite soil back in my home country. He said, take some dirt with you. He said one other thing. He said, in my job as right-hand man to the king, he leans on my arm when he bows to the god Rimen. My body will be bowing before this idol as the king leans on my arm, but my heart will be bowing to the true God. Is that okay? And the prophet says, go in peace. Yet don't you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego They could have easily said, well, we'll just bow to this idol that Nebuchadnezzar made. Our hearts would be bowing to God, but our bodies would be bowing to this idol. But in that instance, God made very clear they weren't to bow to the idol. Which is it? The answer is you let God be the judge. You let God be the one who determines what's right and what's wrong. And I'm telling you, Christians, I laid it out at the beginning for a reason. Don't be one of those people. You don't have enough information. You're not God. And we have a tendency to start thinking that we know better and we should determine how everybody else should be living their lives. I shared with you before, and it happens to me everywhere I go, when they find out I'm having back surgery, everybody's going to come up with their cure, whether or not I should do it. No, you should go to this doctor, not that doctor. Have you tried this? You should never have surgery. Everybody's got an opinion. But you know what? I have a Lord that lives within me, and some people, he says, have surgery. Others, he'll tell you not. And you need to let God be the God in their lives and not you. And we'll avoid a whole lot of mess we get ourselves into. By the way, um, I think God met back with Job and said, hey, um, are you going to condemn me? You would be in the right? How do you think the judgment day is going to go for you when you stand before your creator and he holds you accountable for all the times you spoke for him when you didn't? Jim. Uh, Romans 14.10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt to your brother? 
For you shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, and Romans chapter 14, verse 4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master? He stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. We're going somewhere with what you just brought out. I'm glad that you quoted Romans 14, verse 10. God's word, folks, God's word and his intent is very capable. God's word and his intent is very capable of accomplishing all that God intended it to do. God's word does not need our help. What the Pharisees had done is they had taken the law of God, where it said, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then they had written all these extra laws on how to keep it. The Bible, very, very clear that, that we are to, according to the scriptures, women are supposed to dress in such a way that they, when they go to church, they don't attract attention to themselves. That's all the scripture says. That they're not, not to dress in such a way that they don't that they're to not attract attention to themselves. That's all. But what we have done over the years is say whether or not you can braid your hair, whether or not you can wear gold, whether or not you can wear lipstick. You know, this one pastor was asked, you know, how much makeup should a lady wear? And he says it all depends on her face, you know. <laughs> but here's the deal. The barn needs painting, paint it. Here's the deal. Go to Isaiah 55. Go to Isaiah 55. When we keep adding to the word of God with man-made regulations and man-made interpretations of how you fulfill the law, you actually are saying that the word of God is not powerful to accomplish its purpose by itself. Go to Isaiah 55. Look at verses 8 through 11. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. How many preachers today thinks that all they're to do is read one verse and then they're going to talk for the next 40 minutes and explain it? You know what I do have started to do recently? You say you've been doing it for years. I'm just going to read the Bible to you. I'm just going to keep showing you scripture upon scripture upon scripture because I believe the word's powerful all by itself. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verses 12 and 13. If we really believed that God was love and that he's actually able to get all this stuff done, he wants to get this done, you know how much more fun would be around? We would be to be around? Hebrews chapter 4, look at verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Does that not say that God's word is able to know what people's hearts are and to deal with it all by itself? It doesn't need your help, folks. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verses 14 and 16. 14 through 16. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good Sounds again like it's able to handle it by itself, isn't it? Go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, look at verses 14 through 17. In John 17, starting in verse 14, Jesus is praying on that in the last hours before he went to the cross. John 14, verse 17, Jesus says, I have given them your what? Your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Go to Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 28. And following. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says, talking to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And I want you to put together a constitution and bylaws that will protect you from all of these things. No, that's not what he says, is it? Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in. And they're going to try to divide the flock, have people come and follow them. And I've warned you, I've wept about this. I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to take care of you. That's enough. Go to John chapter 16. Look at verses 7 and 8. John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. Jesus tells his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you see it? I say it at the beginning. I'll say it again. Don't be one of those people. 
Don't be one of those people that thinks you know better than other people how they ought to live their lives and whether or not you think they're keeping the law of God. Wait a minute, Jim. Doesn't it say in Galatians 6.1 that if you see your brother in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. Listen closely. That scripture actually says if you see your brother caught in a transgression. In other words, not if you think you saw him sin once, but someone that's actually trapped, just being beaten up by the same sin over and over and over. You who are spiritual, go restore them gently. But it goes on and says, you better examine your own motives for why you do it first. Actually, the scripture says, we already dealt with it in our study of Matthew chapter 7, that we're not to be judging, lest you be judged. Are there times we're to make righteous judgments? Yes. But as you remember from our study in Matthew 7, avoid it at all costs, unless the Spirit of God makes you. Because we don't know right. We don't know what people have been through. We don't know their hearts even though we think we do. And we can spend our time looking at the Pharisees and how they thought they knew the law of God and they had made themselves above God and they were judging everybody and whether or not they, kept, they were keeping the law. And we do the same thing. And I say to you folks, just go walk with Jesus and let the word of God do its work that God set out for it to do. And you'll find, you'll enjoy your time with him and people will enjoy their time with you. I'm going to give a little pep talk to the People going on our Bible cruise. You see, Just a Preacher Ministry is not big enough to fill a whole cruise ship ourselves. We're going to be on that ship with sinners. And the biggest group might be the Bible cruise participants. Well, I'm going to give a little pep talk to a group of folks tomorrow night and also to everybody when we get together to remind them Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And too often, we don't want to be that group that goes on that ship and starts pointing out all the evil things that everybody's doing. You know what? They're doing the best they can apart from Christ. But we want to go allow Jesus to love them through us. And we don't love them by pointing out their sin. We love them by letting the light of Jesus and the love of Jesus pour through us. And they'll ask us to give reason for the hope that lies within us. Now, go back to our study in Matthew. I think that's what we're studying tonight, Matthew. Jesus says something here in our passage in Matthew, and Mark records something additional that we need to look at in the time we have left. In Matthew 12, verses 6 through 8, as Jesus quotes from Hosea 6 and Psalm 51, I think, as well, Matthew points out a couple of things, and Mark brings out something as well. Look at, look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In Jesus saying something greater than the temple is here, listen, I hadn't seen this until I studied this for this study tonight. I've seen some other things in here. I'd never seen this. Jesus is claiming to be God. Has anybody ever seen that? When he says something greater than the temple is here, he's claiming to be God. You see... The only thing greater than the temple, which God lives in, is God himself, right? If the temple is where God dwells, what's the only thing that could be greater than the temple? God. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Go to Malachi. Just back up one book from Matthew. Malachi chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to what? His temple. 
And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. When Jesus came, he came to his temple because he's God. When he said something greater than the temple is here, he was claiming to be God himself. That's a bold claim of deity, isn't it? Go to Matthew chapter 12 and look at verses 38 through 42. In Matthew 12, 38, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the gen this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, here Jesus points out, you think Jonah was impressive because God used him to preach? Something greater than Jonah's here. You're getting more revelation than the people did in the time of Jonah. Oh, and you think Solomon had wisdom? Something greater than Solomon's even here. And you're missing it. But then Jesus, back in Matthew 12, said this as well. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Folks, don't miss this. This too is a bold claim of deity. Because the Sabbath was the day set aside to specifically worship who? God. Go to Exodus chapter 20. Go to Exodus 20. Look at verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, not any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here we see that it was a day set aside to the Lord. And when Jesus said that something greater than the Sabbath is here, if the Sabbath was set aside to worship God, what's he saying? I'm God. If he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's greater than the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. No wonder the Pharisees went out and planned to kill him. They knew he was claiming to be God. Look at chapter 12 again in Matthew. Look at verse 14. Matthew 12, verse 14. The Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. And it wasn't just to make his name mud, but how they might kill him. Now, like I said, Matthew brings out a couple of things. Mark's account brings something out here as well. Go to Mark chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 28. Mark's account brings something out. I don't know if you all caught it. When we read Luke's account of this passage, we found out that the man with the withered hand, which hand was it? It was his right hand. It's interesting. If, if you study all the gospel accounts of stories, you'll get a little bit here, a little bit there, and you get a clearer picture of what's going on. Like, for example, if you were to just read one gospel account of the thieves on the cross, it looks like they're, uh, one of them's a good thief and one's a bad thief, Right? One of them says, oh, don't you fear God? We're getting what we deserve. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we always think one guy was a good thief, one was a bad thief. But if you go read Matthew's account, you realize they both were making fun of him. They both were mocking him. 
but one of them had a change of heart while he was on the cross. Again, there's so much more that comes out when you put them all together. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, on the Sabbath, or one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, this is Jesus, and as they made their way, his disciples, as the, uh, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and how he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who are with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What did Mark add to this? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. As we've already seen, the Sabbath day was a holy day unto the Lord, but here Jesus shows that part of its design was to be a gift to man and to give him a day of resting from his work as God did from his. It's actually a gift. Man, I'm telling you, I, I question your Baptistness if you don't nap on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> but it was a gift from God. Man, man wasn't made to fulfill the Sabbath regulations. The Sabbath was made for man. God had a reason for all the thou shalt nots in the law. He had a reason. We've taught our children, as my wife and I, by God's grace, we're able to be virgins both when we got married and we're able to teach our kids, look, God's way's best. I don't have to worry about whether or not my wife's thinking of anybody else in her past when we're alone together as a husband and wife. At the same time, we could tell our children, look, God knows he knows what's best. That's why he says, don't do this and don't do that. He's not a killjoy. He actually knows that he's sparing you all this pain and hurt and scars. If you do his will, the heart of the law is actually good. Part of the Sabbath's gifts also to man was what? It was to point us to the rest available through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to read a couple of passages we looked at last week and one that we didn't. Actually, they're all I think we did, because I probably covered them all. But go to Hebrews 4. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, by the way, did anybody catch that the Hebrew writer said it's written somewhere? Did y'all catch that? Look at that again. It's, look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. Does anybody know where he's quoting from here? Genesis chapter 2. The very beginning of the Bible. The Hebrew writer says it's in there. Anybody feel a little better now when you can't call up the address of the, of the passage? I could show you a couple other places where the Hebrew writer does the same thing. 
The word's powerful enough. You can just give them a little bit of it. The Lord will take care of it. Hey, the Bible says, but just make sure that you're not quoting what man says and you're quoting what the Bible says. So it says that he's rested from the seventh, uh, on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, if this rest was only talking about the time of Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. He wouldn't have had David many hundreds of years later write about it. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Folks, the Sabbath was made for man. And if you think you're being righteous because you're resting one day a week, totally missed it. You know what day is the Sabbath day for believers? Every day. When you truly enter that rest, when you stop striving to be right before God and you by faith alone receive that rest. Remember what Jesus said last week? Come unto me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God not only gave the Sabbath as a chance for them to rest, as a gift to them, but it was also a greater gift because it was pointing to the one who would give us the eternal Sabbath rest. We no longer have to work to be right before God. We've entered that rest. I, I hurt for so many Christians who are saved, but they're still trying to please God. You're not entering that rest. You're not entering that rest. By the way, did Moses get into the promised land? Is Moses in heaven? Yeah, we know Moses is in heaven because we see him appear in the Mount of Transfiguration. As I've already taught for, before, I believe without question the scripture teaches Moses will be one of the two witnesses. I believe Moses is in heaven, but he missed out on the rest, didn't he? It's possible to go to heaven and miss out on the fullness of this rest. It's available to you. It's a gift from God. Go back to Hebrews chapter 3, look at verses 18 and 19. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient, so that we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because they didn't work hard enough? Unbelief. Folks, if righteousness or unrighteousness is totally determined by not how we act, but by belief or unbelief, why are Christians known as people of the rules? Why are Christians known as the people that don't do this and don't do that instead of people who have entered into his rest and love people because they know that the same God that took them from where they were is going to be able to get somebody else from where they were to him as well. Years ago, I was at this one church. I travel around, as some of you know, and I meet with pastors, and I'll spend weeks at churches sometimes, and sometimes just a week. And I had just met this pastor, and I asked him to tell me about his church. He's given me a tour around the facility and everything. And we come in the sanctuary, and he started talking about how most of the people in his church sit in the back and do nothing. 
Uh, you, you probably all heard the, the, the old preacher joke about how the uh, back row of the, of the church is just like the shoe department, full of sneakers and loafers. <laughs> so the pastor is going off about all these people who are just, they come to church and they don't do enough. So I just stopped him at some point and I said, you know, I've just gotten to know you. Tell me your story. And he did. He told me, I said, I want to know where you, where, where you were born and tell me about your folks and how did you come to know Christ? Tell me your story. How'd you, how'd you end up getting called to ministry and all that? And as he shared his testimony with me and his story of his childhood and how he got saved and how then later on God called him to ministry, what was interesting to me was there was a period of his life in which he was one of those people on the back pew who didn't do anything. And I said, hang on for a second. Didn't you just tell me that in your story, there was a period you sat on the back row and went week after week after week doing nothing? How did you end up becoming a preacher? He said, God got a hold of me. I said, is that God still not able to get a hold of those same people? Or does he need you to kill them to get off their rear ends? He goes, wow, have I become one of the Pharisees. It's easy for all of us, folks. We will forget who he is and who we are. And when we start falling into that mindset of looking at everybody else and whether or not they're doing it right. What we're really doing is trying to make ourselves feel better by pointing out everybody else's stuff. I'm going to say it one more time. Don't be one of those people. I love you. We'll see you next week.